group of elderly people in an old people's home exchanging notes about their ailments. Have you noticed that's what, when you get older, that's what you do when you meet people? You discuss with them which pills you're on. Oh, I'm on a green one. I've got two yellow ones. Do you have the blue one? No, I don't have the blue one. I'm on a pink one. Uh, discussing notes about their ailments. One said, my arm's so weak and I can hardly hold this coffee cup. Another one said, I know my cataracts are so bad I can hardly see to pour the coffee. Another one said, I can't turn my head because of the arthritis in my neck. Another one said, my blood pressure pills make me dizzy. Another one said, I'm so deaf I can hardly hear what any of you are talking about. Another one said, I guess that's the price we're paying for getting old. And one old man said, well, it isn't all bad, at least we can still drive. Um, what I want to do in this uh, session is talking about leaving some things behind. I was talking to a guy yesterday who'd cycled from Land's End to John O'Groats, and he said one of the difficult things, not only the cycle ride, but was, what, was working out what to take, because he realized everything he put in his bike to take with him, he had to pedal it. And it sharpened his mind totally. So the luxuries he'd normally put in the boot of his car to take on holiday, he suddenly had to sharpen it right down so that he traveled as light as possible. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, I think one of the calls on our lives is that we need to travel light, travel very light. The difficulty is that we already are burdened down with lots of things in life, and we seek to follow Jesus without letting them go. When Jesus came to his disciples, those who were to become his disciples, he said to them, come and follow me. And if you think about Peter, James, and John, who were running probably a very successful boat business, fishing business, which they had set up probably themselves. They'd put a lot of time and labor into it. It was flourishing. It was doing really well. They had friends, neighbors, family around them. And Jesus basically said, leave all that behind. That's a huge thing. And they didn't even know where he was going. They didn't even know what was up ahead. But they wanted to be with him. But they couldn't hang on to it. Had to leave it behind. When we got married 40 years ago, um, and Lois had had a previous boyfriend called Andrew, and, and she invited him on our honeymoon with us. And because she, because he's a really nice guy actually, and she's always been very close to her parents, and they're just lovely people. They're not alive anymore, but they wanted to come as well, so they came. And a number of her friends, her bridesmaids, who really she's very close to, she wanted to bring them along. So it was quite a crowd on our honeymoon. I, I slightly resented it, to be honest with you, but. Um, so they lived with us ever since. It's been, it's been okay. Um, but that's not true. <laughs> but you'd think that was bizarre, wouldn't you? That we have this whole thing in life when you, you leave and cleave. You leave behind. You are, who gives this man to be married, to, woman to be married to this man? You, you, you say goodbye to... It's no longer the parents, no longer your father's responsibility. There's another man in your life when you get married. You leave behind a whole lot of things. You can't take them with you. It's part of the commitment of falling in love and being with someone else. And uh, some things are good, you want to leave them behind, and some things you don't. Uh, it's hard, it's a sacrifice. Um, but if we're going to really follow Jesus, we have to leave some things behind. I remember years ago when, my, when I was a youngster, uh, my father and I made a boat. It wasn't as grand as it sounded. It was a mirror dinghy, which is not very big. We made it from a kit. Um, and uh, we took it, used to take it down to um, near Chichester on the south coast, a place called Bosom, and we'd, we'd sail. I was never very good at sailing, but we sailed this boat. And uh, one day we had it down there. My elder sister came with us. She'd never been sailing before. We had the boat along a, a sort of a jetty, and there was a bar, a, a rail along the jetty. And um, I, I was in the boat. She got into the boat, and she held onto the bar as she got us up into the boat. And she said, what happens if the wind gets up? I said, we'll go fast, and it'll be terrific. She said, I'm not coming, so I could get out. 
She said, oh, I think I might come. I said, well, get in. She said, no, what's all this water in the bottom of the boat? Um, I said, well, we'll probably be able to get rid of that, but if it's too much, of course, we'll sink, but never mind. Um, she said, I'm, I'm going to get out. So I said, well, get out. She said, no, I think I'll come. Anyway, we had this long argument, and m meanwhile, while we were arguing, the boat had inadvertently moved away from the jetty, and she had her hands around the boat. She got to a point, this is absolutely true, you can check it with her, she lives in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> She denies it. It's actually true. She got completely horizontal with her hands around the rail and her feet around the boat, like this. My father, who was on the jetty, always good on these occasions, said, hold it right there, I need to get my camera. So he went, <laughs> he went to the car to get his camera, which was just up the end. By the time he got back, that which he had intended to take had disappeared into the water. And uh, we remember that story. She doesn't. She has blanked it out of her mind. She's completely flipped on it. But I remember it, because um, it's funny but also because it reminds me of so many people in, in the Christian life, is that there, there's a slightly a dual thing. I often say to people, you know, there's only two groups of people in that world who are remotely happy, really. Uh, those who are sinners, and let's not kid ourselves that everybody who is sinning madly is having a miserable time. They're not. It's very transient, and if you get drunk one day, you have a hangover the next, and the consequences of everything they're doing, but there's fun in it as well. Um, the other group of people who are really, really enjoying life are those who are followers of Jesus, wholehearted followers of Jesus. That's a great way to live. It's fantastic. There's a miserable group of people in the middle who want to follow Jesus, but they also want to hang on to some things. They want a little bit of both. I just don't want to let go of that, but I, I sort of want to follow Jesus. Let me just tell you, you are the most miserable people on earth because you can't really, you can't enjoy sinning because you feel guilty about it. And you can't really follow Jesus because you actually know you want to do some things he doesn't want you to do. So how miserable is that? Make up your mind. Some of you might want to go back to the world after today and give up Christianity altogether. Fine. You'll be happy for a short time and then you won't be. But anyway, uh, but, but what I'm trying to say is I think it's a call on us to recognize that actually we've got to let go of some things. And real freedom, real freedom is getting into the boat with all the risks that that is. And the wind may well blow strongly. And things might um, get a little bit out of hand. You know, there's a lovely passage, isn't there, in um, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where uh, I think it's Lucy says to, uh, is it the beaver or is it to Mr. Tomlin? I can't remember. Um, and, and ask about Aslan and said, is he safe? And the reply comes back, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is kind. And to follow Jesus, you're following someone who is kind, but he's not safe. And the wind might get up. All sorts of things God might be doing with us. And we don't know. We have no idea. Because when we set out on this journey to follow him, we don't know where we're going. We have no idea where he's going to take us or what's going to happen in our lives. It's not safe to be a Christian. But you are following someone who's kind. And, but to really enjoy it fully, to get the most out of it, to be the most effective, we've got to leave things behind. And we're rather like this guy on the left. We, many of us carry quite a lot of stuff with us along the way, which are not really very helpful. And in this session before lunch, I'd just like to suggest some of the things, which might surprise you what they are, actually, um, some of the things that we might well do, do well to leave behind that we hadn't even thought was baggage we might be carrying with us. And the three or four main things. The first thing I want to mention is quite straightforward, really, is sin. We leave sin behind. Now, that's fairly obvious, isn't it? Because when you come to Christ, one of the great things about coming to faith is that you have your sins forgiven, that you are cleansed from the past. As far as the east is from the west, so God has taken my sins from me. They was red as crimson, now they are as white as snow. That's the grace of God, extraordinary grace of God, that everything is washed away, that everything from the past is dealt with. We don't have to carry guilt with us 
anymore. When Jesus shouted on the cross, it is finished. It was a cry, as we know, a cry, triumph. I've done it. done everything necessary to deal with your past so that you are utterly free. And we're to live in that grace. And, and to, to um, remember, Jesus says to us, uh, he reminds us, don't sin anymore. But that, that is past, that's dealt with. And, and you, you don't have to ever go back to that. You can leave that behind. You can live free. And that's a glorious thing about being a Christian, isn't it? Whatever you've done in your life, uh, however badly you've behaved, whatever you've been up to, that, that's d- taken at the cross. And if you're living in any sense of guilt, still from the past, then you don't need to, because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to deal with your sin. Um, but there's another part of that, is that we're intended not just to be forgiven from the past, but free in the present. And the great mark of the cross uh, is not just forgiveness, which is usually the main thing people talk about when they think of the cross, and rightly so, that the cross is about forgiveness. But it it is even more than forgiveness, it is to do with freedom. That Jesus died on the cross to set us free, not just from the past of what we've done, but free to live differently. It's like the man who's been in prison, who feels the sense of the chains around them, and the door is open. And they're free from the punishment for what they've done, but now they are free to go and free to live differently. But because we've lived our lives up to this point under the domination of the power of sin in our lives, it takes us time to understand that we can now live differently. Interesting, in John's epistle, he writes this to them, little children, I write to you that you, what? Sin not. That you sin not. No. Let me just ask you a question. <clears throat> um, how many of you expect to get through today without sinning? Would you like to put your hand up? You reckon by the, tonight when you go to bed you'll think, clean. Okay, um, how many you think you'll get to lunchtime? Uh, half a person. Uh, well, how about um, the next uh, ten minutes without sinning? How many reckon they could do that? Two. Uh, the next minute? Nobody. The next second, okay, what did you do? I mean, you all thought you couldn't get through the next second without sinning. What, did, what sin did you commit? I know what you were thinking, that stupid man. What's he talking about? Okay, <laughs> repent of that. Apart from that particular sin, what else did you think? You made it, didn't you? You made it. Phew. Do you know, if you can make it through a second, you can make it through a minute. If you can make it through a minute, you can make it through an hour. If you can make it through an hour, you can make it through a day. What's it to do? You thought it was a trick question. It sort of was. You thought it can't be that good. But what I'm trying to talk about here is an expectation. If you live your life on the expectation, I'm going to be sinning today, what's that about? What is that about? I'm writing to you that you sin not because you are free from the power of sin. You make choices now. And now you're free to make choices that are right choices, to follow the paths of righteousness. In your thinking, in your attitude, in your words, in your behavior, all those things, we are free. Free to live differently. What's the expectation in your heart? That I get up in the morning, I'm not thinking, I'm going to be sinning today. And we think, what sin can I commit today? Because then Jesus can forgive me. I don't live, we don't live like that. We live on the basis, I intend to live a righteous, holy life today. In my thoughts, in my attitudes, etc. You say, are we saying we should all be sinners? No, isn't that wonderful? You go on that passage, little children, I write this to you, that you sin not. But, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's he saying is, you will. You're going to fall over along the way. Probably, somewhere along the way, you're going to trip up, thought, whatever. But isn't it wonderful? As it happens, repent, 
blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Fantastic. He's not saying this is sinless perfection, that everyone's going to be sinless, because there's a provision for it along the way. But what he's saying is, look, you're not just free from the past, you're free in the present. There's an expectation we live differently. So when that negative thought comes in your mind, you can check it. Say, that's not right. A word you were going to say, you stop it. Instead of a, a negative word, you say a positive word. Instead of a negative action, you do a positive action. You are now free. You are not a victim anymore. You are now a free human being, set free by the blood of Jesus to live differently. And we better believe that. And we're not going to go out there and be sinless this week. I don't expect that. Because, but there is a provision for that. Because you're, we're still in the early days of getting out of sin, if you were. Our, our pattern, our behavior, our thinking processes are still dysfunctional. There's still sin in our heart, and it will be there until heaven. We're never going to be fully changed until heaven. We're still going to always wrestle with bad thoughts and attitudes, but we are free to be different. This is incredibly important, because otherwise you will think, I'm just like I was, but I've got Jesus with me. You are not. And anybody who says I'm on, we're only human misunderstands what it means to be a Christian. We are not only human. We have the divine presence of the Spirit in us, who is not there to give us gooey feelings. He is there to radically change our lives, to help us to be the holy people God called us to be. You are free now not to sin, and the Holy Spirit will love that. He's looking for people who say, I, my expectation today is to live a holy life and to live righteously. Now, I'm not, please don't think I'm putting the bar so high that we can't. I know what it's like to live an ordinary life. I know how we fail. I know all the failings of that. I know the thoughts of our hearts which trip us up. I know Paul says I'm the worst of sinners. I know all of that. But surely Jesus came to set us free to make a difference so that we can live differently. And we have to leave the love of sinning behind. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creation. You remember in Hebrews where it talks about running the race and he says in Hebrews chapter 12, we are to throw off the sin that so easily besets us. And that picture in Hebrews chapter 12 is the picture of really of the Olympic Games, of a, of a runner who in their training in, the, in those days would always carry weights on their body to strengthen, the people do it today, you see people running with rucksacks on their back because they want to carry a weight to strengthen their body. Let me tell you, when they get in that arena in, in the east end of London in a few weeks' time, no one's going to be carrying a rucksack on their back. Or you think, what is that about? Take it off, guys. This is the race. So he's saying, that's the imagery of, of Hebrews 12. Throw it off. Get rid of it. I mean, the primary sin he's talking about there is a sin of unbelief because it's about faith from the previous chapter. I think that's what he's talking about. It's very easy to ask the question, well, where is God? All those sort of questions. But he's talking about anything that holds us back. Any, any, anything that weighs us down. Let me just tell you this. I think in my own experience, and I think in most of our lives, the most predominant thing that holds us back in terms of sin and not being free is unforgiveness. Where we have been hurt in the past and we carry those hurts with us. We as Christians are appalling at dealing with hurt. We should be the, the best at it. But it's extraordinary how in churches today there are huge numbers of people who are still carrying hurt. Oh, um, uh, R.T. Kendall has written a book called um, Total, I think it's called Total Forgiveness, all right? And he says wherever he goes and he talks about this and has an appeal, hundreds of people come forward. If you want to have a successful appeal at any meeting you go to, this is a little clue to you if you're a speaker, talk about unforgiveness. People come forward in droves because there's hurt everywhere. Because human beings, let me just take a tack off here, human beings were created soft. Can I put it like that? 
We were not created with hard shells because we were created and made for a sinless world so there would be softness between us. But sin came into the world and so an evil came in and wrong responses to people. And so in the softness, we don't take hurt easily. We, We get hurt badly by these things. But the provision has been made at the cross not only to be forgiven but to forgive. Forgive as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And, but we, are, we find it very difficult. And we go right back into our, when our parents mistreated us, and maybe uncles, friends, or whatever mistreated us as children. We've been let down, hurt, bruised, and then we come into the church, and boy, that's a place for getting hurt, because it's a place where we try and find closeness. And if anybody leaves the church, it's my observation over the years, people leave churches, they leave it because they've been hurt. Nobody says that. They say, God's told me to leave, which is normal rubbish. It's actually, I've been hurt by somebody. Well, deal with it. It's easy to talk about it, but hard to do. But it's, it is the essence of Christian faith. And you can carry around in your life unforgiveness, and it will weigh you down all the time. I was uh, at a meeting, would it be last year or the year before, uh, a leaders' meeting in uh, Chester, Anglicans, Anglican group, and we were in the, in the coffee break, just like we've had now. I was sitting on the stairs in this big sort of conference center. guy came and sat next to me, and he said, I don't know if you remember me, and I said, no, I don't. He said, I came to one of your seminars at Spring Harvest many, many years ago when I was a youngster, and um, it was on, on relationships. I sort of, I do actually remember that. Actually, I'll tell you why I do remember it. This is on the side here. I remember it because somebody told me recently, uh, at that particular seminar I did, they bought the tape of it, and I absolutely love it. I thought, I was feeling really chuffed about that. I said, what, what did you love about the tape particularly? They said, actually, in the middle of the tape, there's an announcement given out that would the mother of child, somebody, somebody said, please come because your child is screaming in the crèche. And that was our child, and so we always like to have that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with my talk. Anyway, this guy heard, and one of the things I'd said apparently was that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, um, unforgiveness can breed um, sickness, and particularly arthritis and those type of diseases. And that young man said, I thought to myself about my grandmother who um, was riddled with arthritis. He's only a youngster, so early, late teens, early 20s. And he said, I went straight from the, uh, Spring Harvest to visit my grandmother. And I was a bit, I was pretty full of myself. I went up to her and said, Gran, I noticed you've got this arth- terrible arthritis. A man has just told me that it's quite possible that if you've got unforgiveness in your life and bitterness, then you get arthritis. I didn't quite say it like that, but that's what he told her. And she, he said she began to cry. And she said, well, he's right. I've actually, I, she said, I have, I'm terribly bitter about some things that have happened in my life, deeply bitter. And he said, well, do you, I think you should get rid of it. And she said, I think I should. And they prayed together. And she confessed this bitterness and anger that she'd had for so many years. Sometime later, he told me, she died. And just before he, she died, he went to see her. And he, she said this to him. Do you remember that time, not a few years ago, when you came and we prayed about the bitterness in my life? And he said, yes. He said, she said, you know, my arthritis never did disappear. But she said, those have been the happiest years of my life. I was glad he told me that. The happiest years of my life. Why? Because she'd thrown off a burden. And uh, we need to leave this stuff behind, this stuff from the past, dealing with the hurts and the pains and that as best we can. Now, we don't always know what those are, but there will be times when God reminds us of them. Even maybe today, God will speak to you about something. So you're still carrying that, aren't you? Because you feel grieved, you feel let down, you feel hurt, and you still want to carry that. I remember a guy came to see me in our church. He'd left our church some years ago, and um, 
uh, he came back for a special event. I met him in the car park. I said, oh, hi, nice to see you. He said, before we go in, can we have a chat? I said, yes, sure. So we went off into part of the car park. He said, four years ago, I left this church. I said, I know you did. It's been very sad. He said, I'll tell you why I left, because of something you said to me. And he said, in the intervening four years, every time your name's been mentioned, I've been angry and get all stewed up. And I said, do you mean you're not forgiven? And she said, no. I said, I've been fine. Apparently, I was the one who said something inadvertently to him that hurt him. Four years, he's been living bitter towards me. And we prayed in the car park, and there was forgiveness and hugging and loving and everything else. And he sort of felt free. He said, thank you so much. But what was he doing for four years, carrying this burden? What are we doing with this? So he's saying, let go, throw it off, get rid of this stuff uh, that we're still carrying. And you may be, it may be financial things, it might be relational, I don't know what it might be in your own life. For certainly for the Hebrew Christians, I think it was unbelief that they were, because they were being persecuted, many of them were thinking, where's God in this? And deeply angry towards God. There's a lot of anger towards God about. Why has God allowed this to happen to me? It's extraordinary, by the way, not extraordinary, but it's sad because often when people get angry with God about, it's usually because somebody close to them is suffering. And by the way, remember this, suffering observed is always more difficult than suffering experienced. People who are experienced suffering rarely complain against God. It's nearly always people who observe suffering. So in your family, a friend, a neighbor, is, is something's happening to them and you feel aggrieved against God. And that's understandable in some ways. But the question is, why do you now feel aggrieved? Why, why aren't we all aggrieved? There's suffering in the world all the time. Someone is being beaten up somewhere. We should figure this out. How, does, how do we accept that in a, in a world where we say there's a loving God? We've got to work that out. But, but when the pain comes, often we get angry with God. Why has he allowed this to happen to me? That's the first thing. The second um, is, let me move on, is uh, idolatry. That's strange, isn't it? Paul said uh, when he wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 and verse 9, he said, I've heard something about you. I've heard how you have turned from idols to serve the true and the living God. You turn from idols to serve the true and the living God. Now, they weren't worshipping totem poles. And it's very easy to think today, well, I don't worship any idols because I don't have any sort of images in my house that I bow down to. An idol is anything that enables you to be at the center of your world and you offer it worship. In other words, when people worship the sun gods, it wasn't because they liked the sun god, they wanted sun. Or you worship the rain god because you wanted rain. Or you worship the fertility god because you wanted fertility. An idol is something that you give honor to, but it allows you to receive and be the recipient of the blessing and you're the center. And, and the, the Christian church today is rife with idolatry because we, we live in an idolatrous world, so we carry it with us as human beings. And it weighs us down. So these people had learned to turn from the idolatry of their generation and live clean with Jesus. And what happens, in, you go to some parts of Africa, some of you have been, and there's a lot of syncretism where people have accepted Jesus, but they're still worshiping, there's still a lot of animism and other gods that they're worshiping. You think, this is terrible. Well, come to Britain, you'll find exactly the same thing. But, but they're unseen gods. They're ones that we don't, we don't see around us. Let me name some of them to you. And I'll just surprise you with the first one, by the way, that I need to mention, and that is Jesus. Jesus can actually be an idol in your life. Can I explain how? Uh, what happens for some people is this, that they're going around their lives and they're uh, living a reasonably good life, but this life isn't quite everything they thought it was going to be, but in the center of their world and life's okay. And someone comes along and says, your life is slightly inadequate, isn't it? It is actually, yes, yes, you're quite right. What do you think I should do about it? Well, I think you need Jesus. Oh, yes, I need Jesus. So I'll get Jesus. Jesus, will you come into my heart? 
So I put Jesus there, and he's on the circumference of my life. And uh, when I need healing, I go to Jesus. When I need answers to prayer, I go to Jesus. When I need help, I go to Jesus. Jesus is wonderful. He is there for me. And he becomes actually just an idol in your life because he is there to serve you and to make sure your life is even more hunky-dory than it was before. So when you're asked to give testimony, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? Oh, I have Jesus in my life, and now he answers all my prayers, and I'm a happy bunny. That is not Christianity. A follower of Jesus is where Jesus comes in the center, and you become on the circumference. He is not there to serve us. He is a servant, and he does bless us, and he does heal, and he does answer our prayers, and he does all those wonderful things. But as I said in the first session, that's not what it's about. It's about putting Jesus right in the heart. And people get annoyed with God because they have put God in a place where they expect God to answer their prayers and do the stuff for them. And God's not, not into that. He's saying, you, you bow down and worship me. I am the center of everything. There is nothing except my presence, going back to the first session. And some of us, I think, in our hearts need to recognize that maybe that's how we view our Christian faith. That something, Jesus is there for me. He's not there for us. We are there to serve him. He's the center of everything. He's, he's wonderfully generous as we worship him. He gives us all this stuff which we don't deserve. He blesses us out of our socks because he's a generous, gracious God, but not because he has to. And so idolatry can be something. And by the way, let me pass on a little bit further, and that is that religion can be another idol in our lives. We can become incredibly religious. Can I just say something about church? Uh, I was saying last night, there are, only, there are three aspects. I'll tell you what a church is. A church, by definition, in my mind, is this. A church is a community of people, listen to the words, community of people who love one another, love God, and love his world. Full stop. That's the church. A community of people who love one another, love God, and love his world. Full stop. Everything else is secondary. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus and part of a community of faith, which you all are, do not demand of your church, your community, that it is anything necessarily more than that. In other words, everything around it is the religious framework we put on it to enable it to be effective. And the problem is we get caught up in the framework and misunderstand the heart of it. See, as long as your church is a community of people who love God, love one another, and love this world, that's church. And you can be a part of it. It can be any shape, any time, anywhere, any size, any, any anything. The framework can change. If you react... Because the framework changes, I would say you've probably caught into the religion and rather into the heart. Think about that and you might unpack it. Because it gives us the freedom as we go into the future to say, I'm not wedded to the institution of church, but I'm wedded to the community. So we say to people at home, when anybody says to you, what church do you go to? Just tell them you don't go to church. You belong to a church. You don't go to it. Because if you go to it, it means it's a place. It's not a place, it's a community. And you discovered that here um, in this area of the uh, Cotswolds area. You discovered that you belong to communities. In fact, there are four or five, I think, churches here. But actually, it's one church, isn't it? Let's face it. It's a communi bigger community that's gathering together um, in a place like this. Okay, here, let's turn to some others. The third one is hedonism. Hedonism is the love of pleasure. And we live in a world where the culture in our, in our world, the culture is that we are entitled to pleasure. We expect Pleasure. We seek pleasure. That's, that's our culture. In, in, in fact, Paul says in, in, in the last days there will be lovers of pleasure. Then we live in a world where there's lovers of pleasure. And people who are lovers of pleasure will never tolerate the concept 
of pain and suffering. And that's why for many people, when they say, I can't believe in a God of love, and I see pain and suffering in the world, is because there is an assumption that we are, our entitlement is to pleasure. Pleasure is a gift. It's a part of joy of being alive. But if you love pleasure, suffering will always be a problem to you and to me. I don't know if um, any of you have read um, a book by a guy called Scott Peck called The World, The Road Less Traveled, which is a stunning book. He wrote it when he wasn't a Christian. He's become a Christian since, I think. But um, uh, it's, it's a great book about life, The World Less Traveled, a very famous book, a great bestseller many years ago. And this is the first sentence or the first paragraph in his book. I'll read it to you, and then I'll read the second paragraph. The first paragraph is this. Life is difficult. That's it. Second paragraph. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It's a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan, more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief, noisily or subtly, that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be, and that has somehow been especially visited upon them, their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, or even their species, and not upon others. I know all about this moaning because I have done my fair share. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or solve them? Do we want to teach our children to solve them? I remember talking to an African who said to me, the thing about you guys in the West is this. You have a completely different attitude to life. Your attitude to life is that life ought to be easy, and when it's hard, you moan and complain. Our attitude to life is that life is difficult, and when it's good, we rejoice. He said, let me give you an example. He said, in England, you might buy a car. You expect the car to work. You expect to do everything it's meant to do. And the moment it doesn't, you moan and you complain and you, you, you get all down. So you spend most of your lives miserable because there's always something that doesn't work. In Africa, we buy a car and we expect it won't work. <laughs> and when it does work, we rejoice. We spend most of our lives rejoicing because we're surprised by things that work and things that go well. It's a complete different attitude. He knows that life is hard because it's a sinful beaten up world, it is difficult. But when we see it work well, we rejoice in it. We expect it to be always good, but because almost every moment of every day, at some point in the day, things are going to go wrong, we get miserable. Instead of saying, that's part and parcel of the life we live. As somebody once said, life is not about waiting for the rain to stop. It's about um, learning to dance. Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Isn't that lovely? Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. My son was telling me that they had a big thunderstorm recently at home, a big downpour, and uh, rather than get, they suddenly thought, oh, we've got to get the kids in from the garden. They didn't. They just said, let's take our clothes off and dance in the rain. They, they got out in the rain and got absolutely drenched. And um, there's something about that in life. Just saying that's, but, it's, but it's part of leaving that behind, because if you don't leave it behind, you will always be bothered by things that go wrong. And sort of saying, actually, I'm going to rejoice in what goes right. And say, isn't that good? That's a good thing that's happened to me today. Someone told me that um, out of a depression they'd been in, that he and his wife had decided that when they went to bed at night, every night, before they went to sleep, they would catalogue some graces that they'd seen in their life today. What can we catalogue that God, how can we count our blessings and name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done? How can we today say, this was good, that was good, that was good? 
Where do you see the grace of God in your life today? That's a great thing to do, I guess, at the end of every day. Where did you see the grace of God today in your life? What little, little thing happened? Little ch- turning on a, a chance thing? What meeting? What little thing happened that said, oh, that was good? And start to count those. And life is very different. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, I think we have to leave behind this obsession that life has got to be great at every moment along the way. Because it won't be. And when we follow him, we're free from that. It's okay. So we're free, you see. Whether we have a hard life or a good life, or the car doesn't start, as ours didn't this week, and I'd only left myself absolute right time to get to a, meet a conference I was meant to be at, and the jolly car didn't start, and it still wouldn't start three hours later. Uh, I was a bit annoyed about that. But you have to say, okay, that's part and parcel of life. Let's see what we make of that. What's that teaching me? What am I learning in that? What can I gain from this situation? What I can gain is that actually the world did not come to a halt, and it was actually fine in the end. The third, fourth thing would be narcissism. I want to come back to that in a minute, which is the love of self. And fifthly, materialism. The greatest um, um, uh, opposition, if you like, in Jesus' mind to the lordship of Christ in our lives, to following Jesus, is money. Jesus taught more about money than anything else apart from the kingdom of God. Why? Because he saw money, if you read in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, 7, you see that in, in those chapters, Jesus talks about money as the alternate God. You love one, you hate the other. You hate one, you love the other. Why? Because money will give to you everything that God should give to you. It will give you a sense of significance, I'm wealthy, look at me. A sense of security, I'm going to be okay. A sense of uh, self-esteem, look at the things I've got and how I look. So we look to money and stuff to provide for us. And it becomes our master instead of our servant. And uh, it, it becomes an idol in our lives. It's, it's true of everybody in this room. Do not deny it. We live in a world, a materialistic world, that is shouting that at us. We've had a number of teams uh, from a local school go out to Africa over the last two or three years. And they were interviewed on Midlands Today last year. And some of the kids were interviewed separately, so they didn't hear what the other one said. And they asked them the question, what did you most notice about Africa? And they all said the same thing. We noticed, number one, the poverty. Number two, the joy. If you've been there, you'll know exactly what they were talking about. What did you notice when you flew back into Heathrow? Number one, unbelievable wealth. Look what we've got everywhere. Number two, misery. People look miserable. Isn't that interesting? And we think that money makes us happy. So we want more of it because the reason we want more of it is because we know perfectly well the amount we have now does not satisfy us. So the assumption is I must have more. Interesting, in a survey, I think it was in the Daily Mail a year or two ago, I asked the question, how much more money would you need to be happy? And the poor and the rich said pretty well the same thing, 25% more. If I had a bit more, I think I could be happy. And it's a lie, of course. But even, even us as Christians, if we're not careful, we buy into the lie. The second thing is, if God is your father, and he owns the world, not only the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns the whole bank shoot, and he loves you, Why do you ever need to be anxious? Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel to the disciples? Why are you worrying? What's up with you? The pagans, they worry. They should worry because they don't have a heavenly father like you do. If you've got a heavenly father, why do you ever need to be worried about money? Because he's the provider and he will always provide for you. He will always look after you. Do you believe that? And when you do believe that, you're free, you see. You're free from the obsession to have and to own and possess and, and what's happening for many of us as Christians is that we're still tied to the love of money. We're following Jesus, but of course you've got to be sensible. 
And uh, we do need to have this and to heed that. Now, of course, we've got to be responsible. God, it's like giving children pocket money. They need to be, we have to be responsible. But Jesus says you can either serve it or you can be the master. You can either worry about it or you can trust him. You can either store it up or you can give it away. And the, the antidote to the, the God of money is giving. It's generous giving. Be a generous giver. And you'll discover when you start to give how sticky your fingers are. Because you think, I better not give too much. I need to be just, just in case. Just in case of what? God goes on holiday? God packs up? Be a generous giver. And I can say this to you because I don't belong to the churches here. Um, the Lois and I have had this principle all the way through our lives, even when we had pretty well nothing, um, of saying that we would tithe our income. We give 10%. Now, I don't know whether it's a New Testament principle or not. I mean, I'm going to tell you it is. But I'd have to tell you it's a very good discipline because it just reminds you all the time. I mean, God's pretty generous if he lets you keep 90%, it seems to me. It's more than the tax man does. Um, so, but I'm going to give 10% because I want to show that I'm in control of this. It's not in control of me. And, and I would also say, this is my own personal theory, that, um, that the 10% should be given to the local church, not some missionary in Africa. There's plenty of money for missionaries in Africa as well. It should be given to the local church. And that's how the local church um, survives. And if you don't believe me, then take Malachi, the last chapter in Malachi, which says, why don't you put the Lord to the test? And if there's a scripture in the Bible that says um, that he'll hold back the locusts and the storm and all those nasty things, and they've experienced those things because they haven't been giving, I would be pretty quick to say, I think I'll experiment with this because I don't think I want those nasties. I want the blessing of God. I want an open heaven. And God is so gracious. He says, why don't you put me to the test? Have a go. Just start giving away your money and see if you're any poorer. You won't be. Uh, there's a, the, the, the world mathematics, if you know this, if you have 10 and you take away 1, what do you get? 9. Kingdom economics says if you have 10 and you take away 1, you have 11. So it's quite exciting, really. So, um, <laughs> you, um, but that's, that's to break the hold of this money thing. This is an unbelievably materialistic society. And this needs to be a community of people who live differently. Of course we've got to be responsible. Of course we need to pay the mortgage, etc., 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 but we're a people who believe actually that God looks after our lives and we're followers of Jesus. And the way we show that is that we are liberated from the power of money. And the only way to be liberated is to be a generous giver wherever God gives you the opportunity um, to do it. It's not easy. No wonder Jesus said to the rich young ruler who he loved dearly, yeah, you only have to see that conversation, one thing you lack, go and give what you've got to the poor. It wasn't, he said, didn't say that to anybody else, but to that young man, he saw that money had a hold over him, and he wants him to be free. So we need to be a great givers. And I would move on to that to say the next idol in our lives is consumerism, which is a gathering of all those things, which is basically I'm the center of my world. That's, we live in a consumerist society where everything is here for us. And church is a very consumer-orientated place. I don't know if you've noticed that. We're, we're, because we're all consumers, we bring our consumerism into the church. And that's why you hear people say, well, I didn't enjoy the worship today, or I didn't like that. And, uh, oh, that's not too good, or I'm going to leave here because there's a church down the road that does this better. We are consumers. We pick and choose. We were talking beforehand, up Phil and I, about the fact that most people today are late to church. Never used to be in our parents' generation. You turned up on time. You assumed 11 o'clock service meant you started at 11. It doesn't now. It means you leave the house at 11, you wander in when you feel like it because it's a leisure activity, and I'm jolly well paying my tithes, and I come when I like. But that is part of a consumer attitude that says the church is actually there for me. I come because it's a good children's work and they look after my children and they look after my teenagers and, and the worship isn't bad and the teaching's pretty good and uh, so it's there for me. 
That is a consumer attitude. And it's in all of us. I'm not, con- I'm not condemning dear people of this area. It's, it's true of me, it's true of Lois, it's true of everybody. But it's, a, it's something we have to turn away from. The only way to turn away from the consumer attitude is to become a producer rather than a consumer. So actually, I'm put on this church because I want to serve it, serve its vision, serve its purpose. I'm here to give my life into this place, not to get from it. I will get from it. That's a double bonus. My children will be looked after. I will have good worship. I will enjoy the teaching, and I'll be blessed by it. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I believe in this body of people, and I want to give into it with everything that I've got. That is a different approach, but it breaks the power of the consumerist approach. And I'll discipline myself. I'm going to be there on time. Not that that's terribly important, but it's a discipline. I'm saying this is important to, to be with this body of people. I'm committed to them and to where they're going and to their vision. You come to Riverside, which is our church in Birmingham, you took anybody out on Sunday morning and grab them and said to them, why are you part of this church? I can guarantee what they'll say to you if they're a family person. They'll say, we come to this church because the children's work is so good. That's great. And I would do the same if I had kids. I'd look for it like that. But if that's all it is, and I hope it isn't for them, then you've become purely a, a Christian consumer. And we cannot change the world by being consumers. We can only change the world by being producers, by giving of our lives into something that we believe in, that I'm part of Chipping Camden Baptist Church or Burford Baptist Church or whatever it is because I believe in the vision and I want to put my resources, my time, my energy, and I want to sow it into this church because I believe we could change this community if I give my life to it. Does that sort of make sense? But all of these things are part and parcel of the type of world we live in. And it's not condemnation because we, f- we float in this world. We breathe the air of this world. We've just got to recognize it's true of us. All of us are hedonistic, narcissistic people. We all are like this. We're all consumers. But we've got to say, no, I want to turn from the idols. I want to be different because following Jesus means living a very radically different life. Free of this. And we're never going to get totally free of it. But at least I can see what's happening and turn away from it. And then the third thing I want to say uh, uh, and, uh, is the whole issue of self. To abandon ourselves, to, to set up, get free of ourselves. You know, um, and you're Baptist, you'll understand this. I was talking to someone uh, last year and I said to them, when you went into the waters of baptism, which is such a great thing, I think sometimes in the Anglican church they miss out on this wonderful experience of baptism. What did you leave behind in the water when you went into it? And this young man said to me, I left my sins behind. It was glorious. I said, what else did you leave? A bit of dirt, he said, probably. And I said, seriously, what else did you leave? He said, that was it. And I thought to myself, we need to do this again. Because ultimately, that's not just what you leave in the pool. It's not your sin. It's only your sin that is buried. It's you. Paul says, doesn't he, in the book of Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. It's myself. I mean, in our household, probably the same in your household, we have, on Fridays, we have the, the, the garbage collection, what do you call it, trash, garbage, rubbish collection, okay? And uh, uh, we put all the stuff out on Thursday nights because it goes on Friday if the foxes don't get it overnight. The garbage men take it the next morning. And, and we love doing that because we don't want it. We do not want to collect rubbish in our house. We're quite glad that the council takes it. Anybody agree with that? We have another bag, which is a white bag with green writing on it that is for clothes, that we don't want anymore. And there are occasions when I've come down and looked at that bag and seen some of my clothes in it. <laughs> and I think, I don't need, I, I think I better, and um, so I think, say to Lois, I don't think I should throw that out. When did you last wear it? Oh, I wore, about five years ago, but I'm sure I might one day. No, no, we'll get rid of it. No, I might do. But somebody else could use it. No, no, no. I don't like that bag going out. I, I struggle with that bag. Do you have that thing? <laughs> 
tussle with it. No, 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 it's my, it's my precious shirt. I've not worn it for years, but I'm And that's a bit like this, actually. We quite like our sin to go because that's pretty garbagey stuff we don't want, but we don't want ourself to go. But baptism, and I say Baptists should know this, is actually about dying to yourself. It's goodbye to self. When I was a youngster at 18, I'd just become a Christian, and I was in a car accident on the M1. Some of you may maybe remember when the M1 was open. It was in the days when there was no single barrier down the middle, and the, and the car came the other way and hit our car and spun upside down our car in, in the fast lane in the motorway. We should have all been killed, and we weren't. And I got into hospital that night uh, because we had to be checked over, and I heard that my closest friend at university had just been killed that day in another car accident, in a motorbike accident. Bad day for me. Bad day for him, but a glorious day because he'd become a Christian six weeks before. And... Um, um, I remember praying that night, being very confused. And I felt God spoke to me, and I don't know. I think it was God speaking to me, but it was an important impression on my mind. It was this. Nick, I want you to live from now on as if you died today. In other words, the ambitions you have, the hopes, the aspirations. Just pretend at 18, that's it. Lovely 18 years. Now, could I possibly have the next section? He's given me a lot of time, as you will have noticed. Um, and that's wonderful. But I think that's what baptism is about. I think it's basically saying, from now on, this life does not belong to me. You are not your own. You bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I, I'm giving myself to him. And that's an attitude of mind. And it takes away that sense of, I've got to achieve this. I've got to do that. I've got to... Say, I don't have to do anything anymore because I could have died. In fact, when I went into the baptism pool, it, it could have happened. In fact, we, had a, we used to baptize people in Mosley swimming baths. And um, you'll remember that. And we used to let different people do the baptisms. I remember vividly one guy who had never done it before. There was a couple, actually. And they had this guy. And they never, they'd never watched anybody else do it properly. And they pushed this guy under the water. And they said, in the name of the Father, hallelujah. <laughs> praise the Lord. In the name, and the name of the Son. Oh, praise you, Jesus. This guy's down there. <laughs> and we're all thinking, get him up. He's going to die. And it was, a, it was a difficult moment, actually. They were so enthusiastic about their prayer, and this poor guy's been pressed down. They're so, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, we would have had a genuine baptism on our hands, actually, if come up. But, but um, that was what it was about. It's about dying, isn't it? It's about being buried. Um, and the great thing about this is it all, sounds, it all sounds rather heavy and harsh, but actually it's about freedom. It's about leaving these things because, and, and being free now, to follow Jesus and, and in our hearts to be free. And it's a process that goes on in our lives. It doesn't happen immediately. It's a process. But as we recognize we need to be free, of oh, it's me again. I'm just living for myself again. I want to live for Jesus. It's the most liberating, the most exciting, the most fun life to have. Um, but we need to see these things in our lives and be able to, willing, uh, to, let, go of, to let go of them. And um, I love this quote from um, uh, a guy called Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna. He was a friend of the Apostle John's, and, and he was brought before the Roman governor. And the Roman governor said to him, I will banish you from this place. And uh, Polycarp replied, you can't do that, for I am at home wherever Christ is. I'll take away your property. I have none. And if I had any, you took away, I still would have Christ, and I would still be rich. I'll take away your good name, said the governor. Oh, that's already gone, he said. I have long ago reckoned it a great joy to be counted as the offscarring of all things for Christ's sake. Oh, I'll put you in prison, growled the governor. Then you'll, then you'll do as you please. I'm oh, sorry. I'll put you in prison, said the governor. Then you may do as you please, but I shall always be free, for wherever Christ is, there's perfect liberty. 
Then I'll take away your life, he said. Then I shall be in heaven, which is the truest life. There's not much you can do with someone like that, is there, really? <laughs> because he's already died, so now he's free. See, when it's, it's fortunate for the Roman authorities and everything that Jesus, when he was resurrected, only stayed around a short time. Because what do you do with a man that you've already killed and he's come back? Not much. Your options are rather short, aren't they? And that's what we are. We are resurrected people. And we have new life. And that's exciting as we seek... Um, uh, to follow him. Let me just look at my thing because I'm going to pray and, and let's pray together. <clears throat> I think I do, we just want to stop there and pause for a moment rather than go on any more this morning. I'm going to ask Jamie to come up and to the piano. And um, just as I've been speaking today and Remember, this is the love of God. It's nothing to do with being condemned about how we are and who we are. We're being changed. It's a process. But it's a liberating process because everything that God shows you to leave behind is something that is burdening you down and preventing you really being free. And whether it's something in your life, a sin in your life, which is like unforgiveness, wrong attitudes to people, to things, whether actually you've made Jesus an idol and you've assumed that he will look after you and, and be the answer to all your or needs. Or whether you've reacted to hardship because you've assumed your entitlement was to pleasure. Or whether you recognize that actually money still has quite a big hold on you. There's nothing wrong with having lots of it, by the way. It's a question of whether it, ha it has you or do you have it. And you recognize there's still things that, that you're hanging on to. It may be just this morning in the quietness of these next few minutes, you're just able to say to God, I want to let them go. Let's stand together. I'm just going to suggest that Jamie leads us in a song. <clears throat> and as a way of response, it's always good, you know, when you feel the Spirit has spoken to you in some way to respond. I'm not going to ask anybody to come to the front or anything. I'm just going to say that I'd just like to say, when God speaks to me, I like to do something, to say, God, I've heard you this, today. And it may be in the first session or in this, but there's something that is just say, God, I want to be, I want to know what it really is to be free. And I'm just going to ask you to, to do something. Whether you want to kneel, you can come to the front and kneel or kneel where you are or sit. I don't know what you want to do. Stand on your chair, do something that just moves your body from where it is to say to God I surrender this to you I want to have that great glorious liberty those disciples had as they skipped along the road with pretty well nothing apart from what they were had on that sense of liberty and freedom it didn't matter because they were with Jesus and it would be okay and to have that freedom again that a child has to lay aside some of the things that have burdened us down. And if you feel you want to do something, then you can come to the front and kneel or kneel where you are or sit or just do something that says to God, just in these moments, Lord, I, I feel I want to say something to you.